listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. It's April 6th, and the time is 4.02, and on behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Ian Grice. And I'm Nick Weaver, bringing you Eye on the Triangle on this unreasonably cold Wednesday afternoon. For today's Eye on the Triangle, we'll be bringing you a look at the events in the week ahead with the Community Calendar by Peter Spazzini. And Jake Winters brings you Snowverated. This week, he reviews the film... We all watched in high school biology, Gattaca. As always, Nick Weaver brings you the Modest Mouth Review, and this week he reviews The Great Detachment, an album by Wintersleep. Well, maybe you guys watched Gattaca. My biology class read Jurassic Park. Anywho, this week on KNC goes TMZ. Jamie Holla gives a recap of the Villanova-UNC championship game. He also goes into the world of streaming and how it might lead to a number one billboard spot for Kanye West. On this week's Poetry Corner, Nikita Chintalupudi interviews Shannon Ward, and our most recent contributor, Ricky Dows, shares her thoughts on Justin Bieber and cultural appropriation. But first we have this news update. Students at Duke University have been occupying the president's office for six days. Nine students are protesting Duke's vice president, who allegedly hit a parking attendant in 2014 and used a racial slur against her. Duke students and workers in solidarity have made seven demands, one of them being a $15 minimum wage for campus workers. There has been discussion by the administration about what to do with the students, but they will not be punished. However, administrators refuse to negotiate until the students leave the building. Administration has also shut down the, all access to the building, despite there being classrooms and offices. The embattled vice president, Talman Trask, has denied using a racial slur but has officially apologized for hitting the parking attendant. Mm -hmm. In weather news, tomorrow it will be finally be warming up again with a high of 71, but there is an 80% chance of rain in the morning, so don't forget your galoshes and raincoats. And it won't be until next Monday that the temperatures get back into the 70s during this unseasonably cold April. And now, Poetry Corner with Nikita Chendalupudi. Everyone has a story to tell, but how they tell it differs. Whether you're a poet, spoken word artist, singer, an actor, a musician, everyone has that story to tell. And here is the place to tell it. Welcome to Poetry Corner. Hey guys, welcome to Poetry Corner. I'm Nikita Chintilaputi, and I'm here today with Shannon Ward. Shannon, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Nikita. So Shannon actually received her MFA in 2009 from NC State, and she was under the direction of Dorian Locks, who continues to teach here today. She is the author of the poetry chapbook, Blood Creek. 
and her poem Love Spell was selected by Kevin Young for the 2016 White Oak Kitchen Prize in Southern Poetry. So congratulations. Thanks. And she was also the winner of the 2013 Nazim Hikmet Poetry Prize. Her work has appeared in numerous outstanding journals, including Raleigh Review, Great River Review, Superstition Review, and Tar River Poetry. So again, thank you for being with us. I hear you have some great stuff for us today. I'm super excited. Oh, thanks for having me. So first we'll get started with your first poem, which I believe is entitled The Man with Red Eyes. Yeah, um, so this poem comes from my chapbook, which weaves a familial incest narrative with poems about the renovated slaughterhouse that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And these two themes overlap throughout the book. Um, so this, this first poem is a mock villanelle. It doesn't adhere to the rhyme structure, but it does follow the pattern of repetition. And it's a story that my sister used to tell me about the man with red eyes. Each night the butcher rises, soaking from Blood Creek, and sloshes back through the woods to our house. His red eyes watch through the windows while we sleep. Smoke rises from my sister's mouth as she speaks. He froze to death, drunk, chopping wood. Yet each night the butcher rises, soaking from Blood Creek. This is the story she tells instead of the secret she keeps. The black spot lurking at the back of her throat. His red eyes watch through the windows while we sleep. Soon she disappears in a fog of blue smoke. Weeks that cloud into years, while still each night the butcher rises, soaking from Blood Creek. So when we wake in the night, we don't dare peep outside, and we don't dare keep our bedroom doors unlocked. His red eyes watch through the windows while we sleep. I can see him even now, a red streak, sneaking through all the doors of my dreams. Each night the butcher rises, soaking from Blood Creek. His red eyes watch through the window while we sleep. The next poem is called Dressing the Hog, and it also comes from the chapbook. Since I grew up in a renovated slaughterhouse and I started writing slaughterhouse poetry, (laughs) I had to deal with the fact that this butcher who'd built the house um, in the early 1900s was actually a, a real person, but I'd kind of used him as a, a stand-in for, for my father. Having done that, I, I felt a little guilty, and I wanted to write a poem and give the butcher a, a chance to speak, to, to defend himself. And I, I had intended to allow him to, to come off admirably. <sighs> um, but then I wrote the poem, and he... he <laughs> Sounds kind of like a psychopath. So. <laughs> we can't be responsible for the way poems end up, can we? <laughs> no, I guess we can't. They just go where they want to. Dressing the hog. Truth be told, I like the blood. The sour, sweet smell. Thick and sticky slick, how it steams on winter mornings. I like the body drained of it. Hooked just behind the hooves. Hanging and waiting with exquisite symmetry. The bandsaw is quicker, but I don't trust the bone dust. Would rather cleave the body into the old way. How I learned from my father, who learned from his father, who learned in Berlin before boarding a boat to America in 1835. So you see, I do what I do well. I slice flesh like silk to spill the guts. And I spread the body out, pink and cool and clean, and offering to the knife's immaculate subtraction. Then across my table, I splay the cuts of meat, each attesting to its former utility. 
And when the children across the creek smell the rendering lard and come running for the cracklins, I throw the eyeballs at them. The next poem I'm going to read is called Love Spell, and I wrote it after I finished the chapbook in an attempt to add some levity where the book really needed some. <laughs> uh, so I attended a really great panel that had Alpha Michael Weaver and Katrina Vandenberg called Levity and Gravity. And I came away with a lot of thoughts about how I could lighten the tone in certain parts of the collection. And so I was at the Norton Island Colony and uh, went muscling with a couple of the other <laughs> residents, we, uh, you know, got into the, the waters fun. in Maine. Yeah. <laughs> we, we stepped into the really ice cold waters in Maine and uh, collected mussels. And so this is the poem that resulted from that. Love Spell. Low tide between two rocky shores, step barefoot in the sound. Absorb the shock of cold into your bones as you sink into the muck, sucking under step. Through mud clouds pluming over sharp rocks, you must feel your way lightly with the soles of your feet. Wade waist deep to where the sweetest muscles nestle, hiding from the sun like sleepy lovers, growing plump beneath thick tidal blankets. Reach into the muck and tuck your fingers beneath their clumpy beds. Tug gently to tear the bisel thread nets pinned to the seafloor and fill your hands with heavy strands of silver-flecked blue shells, crusted with cockles and tasseled in seaweed. Rip the rocks away and plunk them back into the water. Pilfer the fodder of the blue world until your bag is full. Then drape it over the dock and let the current wash the muck away. All day until supper time, when you'll return to sort, the silted from the sealed, squeezing each shell, Tossing those that ooze gritty slime into your palms and pulling stubborn whiskers from the ones you keep, chipping away what barnacles you can. Rinse them again in the ocean and the sink. Mince many cloves of garlic to saute and salted butter. Add cheap white wine and a little water. When the mixture boils, drop the mussels in and cover. Let the steam seep the hinged valves open the nacreous lamina cupping its sweet meat, which you must chew slowly, swallow the pearls. The next poem's called Vanishing Spell, and it appeared in the latest issue of the Raleigh Review. And uh, it's another one of the spell series that I wrote to add some levity to the full-length collection that I'm working on, although this isn't the most lighthearted poem. <laughs> uh, Vanishing Spell. Cut the heart from the next dead bird the cat drops at the back door. Chop the slick giblet into a stew, then catch a bus to New York at midnight when meth devils guard the station door. Drop silver coins in their paper cups to ward off their garbled curses. On the way, talk to no one. Sink into your seat. Turn your sweater into a pillow, but don't fall asleep until you've threaded your feet through the straps of your bag and said seven incantations to dream of flying. As for the small, heartless thing you carry with you, keep it tucked away somewhere close. When you arrive in New York, buy a knife to clean the tiny bones. In the meantime, speed down the road from consciousness to sleep until you gain enough momentum to lift off from your body. Then trouble the clouds until you come to know what the warbler has always known. 
Confide your secrets to a winter sky and secrets turn to snow. It will fall when you wake in Chinatown. First, find a knife. Call your lover later after you've called your husband or wife to say, I made it to the city. Soup's in the fridge. Disappear in an alley or under a bridge and dissect the cold body to feel the hollowness inside the bones. The anatomy of flight, so light in your upturned palm. That's incredible. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Your work was fantastic. Um, Shannon is actually going to give me one of her chat books to keep, so I am so excited to read it. Um, but I noticed like, throughout your poetry, you seem to kind of draw on your childhood experiences and your background a little bit. Would you say that that really played a big role in your life, or do you think that's something that you use just as like a starting off point for a lot of your, your poems? Well, I think I began writing poetry in an attempt to try to deal with a lot of the unresolved issues that I had uh, mm -hmm. with my family, uh, stemming from my father's pedophilia and um, my sister's death from cancer many years later. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to grapple with those issues, but at the same time, I was also kind of scared mm -hmm. to approach those issues because it, it's something that my family never talked about. I really struggled with that. Um, and thankfully, uh, I, I got some really good advice from Natasha Trethewey. When I was at uh, the Vermont Studio Center, she was the visiting writer there, and uh, we were workshopping some poems together. I had explained to her that I was hesitant to mention some details because of the way that, you know, they would implicate my family. And she gave me great advice, which was that I should just go ahead and write the poems and then figure out what to do with them later. <laughs> so I did that. And um, it, definitely that trauma is something that informed my chat book immensely. Mm -hmm. um, I've moved beyond that subject matter in the last few years. And uh, thankfully, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it definitely was the impetus for a lot of my early work. Mm hmm. You mentioned earlier that you use the butcher character that reoccurs in a lot of your poetry as a sort of emblem for your father. How did that metaphor first come about for you? Was it something you chose or was it something that just arose kind of unconsciously? Um, I started writing a poem called The Butcher that began just being about this butcher that my sister had always told me about. You know, she, she told me yeah. that ghost story of the man with red eyes yeah. and it, it, it stuck with me. It haunted me. And so I began writing a different poem, the, the poem called The Butcher, trying to kind of capture the, this image of um, this man pouring blood in the creek behind our house because um, our house was a slaughterhouse in the early 20th century before health codes dictated that you yeah. couldn't just dump blood <laughs> in a creek. <laughs> so they just poured the blood in the creek. And, and I started with that image. And as I wrote the poem, I realized that I was really dealing with subject matter having to do with my father and trying to grapple with issues of how he did what he had done. Um, mm -hmm. And so I didn't consciously make the decision to do it, but once I'd done it, I, I realized that there was kind of no turning back. <laughs> yeah. 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 One other question I had was um, just kind of relating again to your background and where you get your inspiration from. Do you feel like... Poetry is something that sort of lended its way to that kind of recovery process. You were talking about how you've moved beyond just that subject matter. Is that something that you think poetry has helped you on that journey? Or is it more just kind of a byproduct of it? 
No, it's absolutely something that's helped me. Um, I think that with stories that haunt you and that uh, trouble you, the best way to stop them from doing that to, to the extent that you can is to retell the story so many times and in so many different ways that you get a little bit of control over it. And so you can focus on an image that you find redeeming or at least beautiful enough to make up for some of the, yeah. the, the things that are a little bit more difficult to swallow. Yeah. yeah, that's incredible. It's an incredible story. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. All of your work thank has you. been incredible, and I look forward to reading your chat book. Thank you. <laughs> so this has been Kira Chintalapudi with Eye on the Triangle. Good afternoon. In this week's segment, I will be discussing sports and music-related news in KNC goes TMZ. 68 teams started and only one came out victorious in this year's NCAA tournament. That team was the Villanova Wildcats, who defeated the Carolina Tar Heels this past Monday in Houston by a score of 77-74 to in a thrilling game of basketball. Carolina ended the first half leading by five points and looking pretty invincible, hitting an abnormally high amount of threes to give them the lead. That is, until Villanova started getting hot and took the lead halfway through the second half and didn't look back until Carolina's Marcus Page tied the game at 74 with a ridiculous shot, leaving 4.7 seconds left on the clock. Overtime seemed imminent, but Chris Jenkins wasn't having it and drilled the shot of his life as time ran out and put a very tragic end to Carolina's impressive season, with Villanova winning 77-74. to it was Villanova's second national championship, their first coming in 1985 when they beat Georgetown. It is a game that some are saying will be considered one of the top championship games of all time due to the close play throughout and the amazing shots made by both teams down the stretch. The night ended with tragedy for one school and utmost joy and bliss for the other. In music-related news, Kanye West is expected to top Billboard charts this week for his recently released album, The Life of Pablo, despite the fact that the album did not even have an official release date or physical copy. The album will be placed on top due to its high number of streams with services such as Spotify and Apple Music. The album is expected to have sold 60,000 copies. You might be wondering, how did he sell 60,000 copies if it's only on streaming services? Well, in 2014, Billboard made a new rule that every 1,500 track streams equates to one album sell. That would mean that The Life of Pablo has been streamed around 90 million times already. The fact that an artist can now release an album without a physical copy and for it to do so well is a huge game changer in the music world and can mark a definite change within the way the music is sold going forward. Continuing the theme of streaming services, SoundCloud has entered into the world of a paid streaming service with its recent launch of SoundCloud Go. SoundCloud Go will operate as a service similar to Spotify in that it has a similar price point, no ads in comparison to the free version, which does have ads, and the ability to save songs for offline play. The biggest difference in the one SoundCloud Go is trying to sell hardest is its unique collection of music. SoundCloud Go won't be like Spotify in that it isn't a streaming service to listen to to the new Explosions in the Sky album. It is a streaming service that operates on a more community-focused basis as users are allowed to upload their own material onto SoundCloud. This material can range from original compositions to remixes of work by Rihanna and maybe even a mashup of Linkin Park and Smash Mouth. 
SoundCloud Go is aiming to appeal to a crowd of music listeners that are looking for something different than the standard fare that Spotify and Apple Music offer. It'll be interesting to see if SoundCloud Go succeeds or fails due to entering the paid service industry too late in an early, highly Spotify and Apple Music-dominated market. This has been Island Triangle with Jamie Hollow. Have a good evening, and I'm now signing off. Thank you for listening. do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. So on Sunday night, Justin Bieber graced the iHeartRadio Music Awards stage and debuted his new look. The Biebs is sporting dreads, and while I'm not a fan of dreads in the first place, even I can admit that these don't look so bad. But not everyone is in love with the look. Once again, the cultural appropriation fairy has come to pay us a visit. A lot of people are saying that Justin is stealing a look that's mostly looked at as a black hairstyle. The history of dread states all the way back to African countries like Egypt, Ethiopia, and Kenya. They also have religious roots and were commonly used in Hindu practices. Critics of Justin's new hairstyle think that he's taking away and popularizing something from a culture that has been wearing dreads for years. They also have issue with the fact that the media criticized Zendaya for her dreads, saying that they smelled like weed, while so far they've had nothing but love for Justin's. But he's not the only Hollywood celebrity that's causing a black lash. Kylie Jenner has popularized big lips when black people have been ridiculed for that characteristic. The Kardashian girls set the boxer braid trend in motion, but cornrows have always been a staple of black culture. And Iggy Azalea has used the same stereotypical black accent in her music to make it more authentic, but that same tone used by a black person is often called ghetto. So I kind of get the outrage, but then again, I don't. It's 2016, guys. These cultures have been around long enough in America to where now everyone's kind of doing them. White people have been wearing dreads for a while now. We literally take Aztec tribal patterns and wear them as a fashion statement. And I can't even begin to tell you how much European culture I've appropriated when it comes to styling my own hair. America is supposed to be this big melting pot of cultures. Is this what we've come down to? Fighting over cultures like toddlers in the mine phase? This culture's mine. Don't touch it. It's mine. Like, why can't we just share? But I'm not saying that cultural appropriation is okay either. I do understand that white America has had a history of taking aspects of other cultures and blatantly disrespecting them. Minstrel shows and blackface of the 19th century both made fun of black cultures while making a ton of money off of it. And that kind of thing's definitely not okay. But if you can take from a culture and appreciate it, even celebrate it, then what's the problem? To bring the issue to our own front door, NC State canceled a luau about a month ago for cultural insensitivity. And while I never want to say what people should and shouldn't be offended by, I really don't think it should have been a problem. The general essence of a luau is to bring people together, and I think that's all the hosts were trying to do. 
They weren't disrespecting Hawaiian culture. So what was the issue? Call me crazy, but I think it's a good thing that people want to come together to celebrate cultures. I think it's awesome that people can see something that someone else is doing and think that it's so cool that they want to do it too. Tell me, how could you ever find offense in that? But hey, that's just what I say. Do you agree? Have a different opinion? I'm happy to listen. Until next time, this has been Ricky Dowles of Eye on the Triangle. What do you mean? Oh, oh, when you nod your head, yes, but you want to say no. What do you mean? Hey, yeah, when you don't want me to move, but you tell me to go. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle, and you are listening to the Modest Mouth Review. I have no idea how to start off this review. I've used up basically every witty intro I could think of, as well as just opening directly into the review, so I guess this is what you get. Anyways, today's album to be reviewed is The Great Detachment by Wintersleep. Now, usually I like to wait until about halfway through the review to indicate how I feel about an album, but I gotta say, this album was an unexpected nugget of gold. When I picked up the CD from the studio, I was just grabbing something from an artist that I was vaguely familiar with from Pandora, and it also came out this month. Little did I know that this album would be stuck in my head for the next three weeks. It's probably going to stay in there for another five as well. It's just that enjoyable. Now, my exposure to this band actually goes hand in hand with the first question I always like to ask, which is, who are Winter Sleep? Like I said, I've had some nominal exposure to this band in the past. That takes the form of listening to two of their songs on Pandora and two or three that I didn't really care for that much on YouTube, which I subsequently forgot. The other two songs, however, have been with me for a while. Those are Weighty Ghost and Dead Letter and the Infinite Yes, respectively. When I heard those songs, I was at a time in my life where everything was just kind of crappy, depressing, and confusing. So, you know, 90% of your teenage years. The first song, Weighty Ghost, was a sad pleasure. A kind of comforting tale of depression that lets you know that you're not alone and that everybody's got to do a little soul-searching sometime. Dead Letter and the Infinite Yes is fairly similar, but instead of providing comfort, it more so revels in distress and depression, acknowledging the flawed nature of humanity and emotion from a biological standpoint. It's one of the few songs that I've heard that accurately addresses the futility of depression as a disease of both the mind and body. Both of these songs have had a lasting impression on me, as a product of their sheer musical brilliance, and are the base which I form my impressions of Winter Sleep around. Even though I never really checked out their other work prior to now, I had always held their creative ability in a somewhat high regard just based off of those two songs. So that's my understanding of what the band has been. The actual history of the band shows that these two songs that I heard were off of their third album, Welcome to the Night Sky. The Great Detachment, today's album, marks their fifth full-length album and has been hailed as a return to form for the Halifax, Nova Scotia-based band. I can't confirm or deny that as I haven't really listened to any of their first two albums, but that's what the Wikipedia page says, so I'm going to stick with it. Having gone back and listened to Welcome to the Night Sky all the way through, though, I can say that this album is definitely much different from just two albums ago. Welcome was a lingering, depressing album about internal struggle, sadness, self-acceptance, and coming to terms with mortality. 
It featured subdued guitars and drums with an emphasis on vocals and softer instrumentation. The Great Detachment is a somewhat stark contrast to these moody, blues-laden indie tracks. Where Welcome had internal struggle as a recurring theme, The Great Detachment faces outward struggle as introduced through difficult relationships, a failing country, albeit not the band's own country of Canada, and adjusting to a changing landscape in life. Where Welcome was subdued and internally pensive, The Great Detachment is forthright and loud, trading hush, steady guitar for a blurring, klaxon alarm sounding accompaniment that grinds away in the background. This is especially present on the album's opening track, America, which borrows from famous American poet Walt Whitman. You can probably guess which poem they got the lyrics from. Side note, I find it really funny how they took a poem about a grand vision for a new country and used the lines to create new lyrics about disease and the failing state of a country, America, which they do not reside in. The band is Canadian, which I guess just means the American spirit is universal. Or it was just really easily applicable to Canada as well. Either way, the song is a great success and showcases a lot of changes from Welcome to the Night Sky all the way up to The Great Detachment. The song is pure indie rock and relishes in it. There's a certain intelligence that arises from the music itself and accompanies the use of Whitman well. The song as a whole does a great job at creating a sense of grandeur accompanied by furious unrest, perfectly encapsulating a lot of the emotion unfolding in America throughout the ages and even today. And it's not just that first song that's pure gold, it's like the first five tracks on the album can't go wrong. Be it the nighttime beach atmosphere created in Santa Fe or the strong sense of self-realization created by the song Lifting Cure, this album knows how to convey a certain feeling, and it knows how to do it well, and consistently, and whilst making sure the tracks themselves are catchy and easy to listen to. It's not often that a work can find a clean compromise between artistic message and casual appeal, but The Great Detachment has that down, solid. It's rare as well to find an album this solid overall. There aren't many complaints that can be had here, but as usual, no album is perfect. Where I find The Great Detachment lags is in the generic latter half of the album. Past the song Shadowless, the songs generally don't stand out near as much. Aside from the song Territory, which has Getty Freakin' Lee on the bass, Getty Lee, Canadian garden musician extraordinaire, founder and lead vocalist of the legendary classic rock band Rush, Forever and Ever Amen. So, yeah, Territory is pretty hype. And it stands out as being one of the few immediately great songs on the latter half of the album. It's also one of the singles. Now, that's not to say the rest of the tracks aren't great, it's just that they have to grow on you a bit more before you really get to enjoy them. That's really the only complaint I have to voice with this album. I'd say I don't think it's totally groundbreaking, but who really knows? It's a unique enough album that fits solidly in that niche gray area between indie and mainstream, and it kicks ass. Whether it reinvents the genre or not is irrelevant at this point. For my final rating on a scale of negative 2 to 7, I give The Great Detachment a 5.5. But wait, I hear you say, how come it's not a 7 or at least a 6? Well, as much as I enjoy this album, and I think it's a solid piece, in addition to the flaws I just described, I actually am starting to grow a little tired of it. Granted, I've listened to it about 20 times now, but my opinion has been slightly dampened. 5.5 is still a top-tier score, though, and I'll be holding up The Great Detachment as one of my favorite releases of 2016, guaranteed. Once again, even though I just said it, the album is The Great Detachment by Wintersleep. That's all for today.
this is Jacob Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snowverated, and today we'll be taking a look at the film Gattaca. Gattaca is about a world where genetics have been mastered. When you want to have a child, you first visit the geneticist and give him or her the specified traits that you want your child to have. They then help you conceive that perfect child. The story follows a man that was born in a natural way and how society views him. This movie's premise poses a lot of questions and provides an interesting look into the future. I wondered when I heard the premise how a man could ever expect to compete with the best of mankind when he was born with some amount of defect. This is a logical question and the movie takes it head on. It challenges what people think about genetics in the future and says a lot about our current time in doing so. The main message it sends is to never let someone else determine your future. From the beginning of the movie to the end, it is pretty obvious what's going to happen. When you hear the main character's dream at the beginning, it's hard to see the story going anywhere else. The story isn't bland, though. The curveball is thrown in by future technology, and the random chance of the world will always get in the way. The makers of Gattaca did a good job of making the story interesting. They took this world that many have envisioned before and looked at it in a criminal perspective. Very interesting way to do things. I like this aspect because I think almost everyone can agree that criminals are never going to go away and that the good ones are usually clever. It also makes you root for someone that's pulling off a crime and sort of makes you question your own morals. The writers developed a whole system of how crime could happen in this world relating to genetics, and the level of detail put into how the crime can be done is high and impressive. With this system of crime, they built a lot of suspense. You never know what might go wrong in the movie because this technology is foreign to us. The technology of those who are fighting crime is also unknown to the viewer, which will generally make you think they have the upper hand in most cases. There's a lot of attention to detail in terms of design of the movie as well. The letters ATCG that represent the proteins of DNA can be seen in the opening credits as well as in the title of the movie. This attention to detail is always what I like to see in movies. It doesn't add anything to the stories, but shows, or at least attempts to show, how much work was put into the movie. These kinds of things don't make a movie, but when added to a movie that is good, it can make it great. There are other instances where the letters come up, but I will leave it to you to find them. The design of many things in the movie are based on things from the 1950s and 60s, the period of the space race. It is interesting to see a future where they are dressing like a period from our past. It is sort of like if the world had just continued on from the 50s to the future with space exploration and style. Either that, or in the future there is a resurgence in the 50s and 60s styles. It could even have been a result of what seems like a huge space program and wanting to be reminiscent of the time when it started. These details make the world seem all the more real. Some things of the plot felt forced, like the made-up slang of the future. They called the people that were not born with genetic-altering degenerates. This portmanteau is clever, but it felt out of place. There were not too many others like that I felt stuck out like that, but even just this one threw off the story and made it feel slightly cheesy to me. I'm going to give this movie a 7 out of 10 overall. I really enjoyed the concept and what they did with the imagining of the future in a different way, but felt that the plot was just a little bit too predictable. Even the major twist at the end was pretty foreseeable. But just because the movie is predictable does not mean it is bad. This movie is all about believing in yourself and finding a value in yourself that society just doesn't see. The style of the movie was enjoyable, and I think it was just overall a slightly above average plot with a great premise. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Snowverated and Eye on the Triangle. I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening.
You're listening to Eye on the Triangle. This is Ian Grice. And we will be doing Community Calendar Live this week. We are going to be learning a little bit about Pan-African Week, and we have a guest. Can you introduce yourself? Hey, all. I am Marshall Anthony Jr., a second-year master's student in the Higher Education Administration program, also an alum um, of NC State, class of 2014. Um, But I also serve as the um, graduate assistant um, to the University Activities Board and Student Involvement, specifically the advisor to the Black Students Board. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about Pan-African Week? Sure. Um, so before I go into about Pan-African Week, I want to talk to you um, at first about just what Pan-African means, because a lot of people ask, especially nowadays um, in a more contemporary period, about like what does it mean, right? And so um, according to definition, Pan-Africanism is an ideology and movement that encourages the celerity of Africans worldwide. And based on the belief um, that, unif- that unity is vital to economic, social, and political progress that aims to unify and uplift people of African descent. And so Pan-African um, Week, 46, and we're celebrating the 46th year of it, um, all of them have some theme of the holistic development of African and African-American people um, here on NC State's campus and um, abroad. And so specifically to the week, each year has a theme. And the this year's chair, um, Tashari Saunders of the Black Students Board, decided to choose um, the theme of rooted um, because in the spirit of the Sankofa, which is a proverb that we use, um, we know that it is not taboo to go back and fetch that which we have forgotten. And so the theme reminds us that in the midst of current events surrounding black culture and the messages we are receiving from the media about the values of our life, we are deeply, firmly and unapologetically rooted in who we are. Um, so that's the the theme of the week and what we're going towards. Okay, and so you uh, you've organized events around this idea this week, this theme mm-hmm. of Sankofa. Um, so what events are happening during this week? Yeah, so we're right in the midst of it on Tuesday. So we kicked it off on um, April the second, and it'll run through sa- this Saturday, April the ninth. And so thus far, we've had. Um, a cookout. We were able to get um, students from a high school um, here for a college explosion. So a lot of that college access. And that's the thing that I really like about Pan-African Week this year is that we're able to even impact students before they get here and still engage with alums even at um, right at the end and throughout the week. Um, we've had programs um, in regards to spiritual development. So with the Uninhibited Praise Concert and, and Peace Church, we have um, more so confidence building and, and what that means with the pageant yesterday and shout out to the pageant winners, um, Jordan Williams and um, Angelica Austin. We also have events um, today. We also have lunch and learn. So that educational component. And so we really wanted to hi- highlight that, that, you know, our culture is just not um, entertainment. We do have fun, um, but it's also for an educational piece, just not for our community, but for anybody to engage and what it means in, in, the, in the African diaspora experience. We have um, Dance Visions Dance Company, who's performing tonight. We have a fashion show tomorrow. We have, uh, we have a What's on the Table feature by the IE Ambassadors. I'm with the African American Cultural Center to talk about different current events that's going um, around in an informal setting. Um, we have a, we originally were going to have a concert featuring um, Kaylani. But based on um, some unfortunate situations, unforeseen circumstances, we decided to turn it into, um, since she was unable to attend, a benefits concert focused around mental mental health and wellness. 
Um, so that will be our Friday program. Saturday, we'll have our final kickout where we're collaborating with the Black Alumni Society. So that alumni involvement and the the final program will be the step show um, by the National Panhellenic Council. And so we still have a wide range. So, again, kind of in regards to what Sankofa means, really hitting all of the holistic aspects um, of our community and in, in, in being um, confident in who we are and sharing it also with other people. <laughs> Um, so what what event would you say that you're most interested for? Um, well, I'm a little biased because, I mean, being a part of the, so as advisor, you know, and the only reason why I'm here today is because my students um, are in class. And so they were like, Marshall, can you please speak? I was like, sure. So, um, but I do want to, you know, really shout them out for their work that they've done. Honestly, I've, I've enjoyed, this is my sixth Pan-African week. I've enjoyed it as an undergrad and now I'm really seeing it as an advisor. I have an even much more appreciation for it. I honestly all of them um all of them in some way I think touch me in in many different ways because it either ignites some type of intellectual um, capacity that I may have or it gives me a good laugh um I think I don't think one stand out more than the other I mean I encourage people to not necessarily just go to one I mean unless if unless your schedule only permits you to go to one but try to go to as many as you can because you want to get the full pan-african experience and so even if you missed a couple thus far there is still plenty of programs to go to this year we have had more programs than I think in a while we have over 20 programs and so and they range not just in the evening like how it used to do but really throughout um, throughout the day so we have some a lot of lunch and learns and it's a lot of free food, a lot of good engagement. So honestly, all of them um, are really great in attending. I really cannot highlight one um, at all. Mm. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming here today. Um, and... I'd like to thank Jake Winters, Nick Weaver, Jamie Halla, Ricky Dows, Marissa Jordan, and Nikita Chindalupi for contributing. As always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know on Twitter at WKNC underscore EOT. And be sure to check out our blog and podcast at WKNC-EOT.tumblr.com. And you can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week, Wednesday, right here on WKNC FM Raleigh. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Ian Grice. And I'm Nick Weaver. Thank you for listening, and have a nice day.